The number of measles cases in California continues to rise in what has become the state's worst outbreak in more than a decade. The country is documenting more measles cases than it usually sees in an entire year, and it's not even February. Experts say these outbreaks could be avoided if more parents chose to vaccinate their children. A recent report from a professor at IUPUI found that Indiana's relatively strict vaccination requirements make the state less likely to suffer from a widespread outbreak. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we will speak with a professor from the Indiana University School of Public Health, Bloomington, and a pediatrician from Riley Physicians about the role of vaccines in preventing widespread illnesses. And we invite you to join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about the measles. The number of measles cases in California continues to rise in what has become the state's worst outbreak in more than a decade. Uh, the outbreak has been linked to visitors to the Disneyland Resort theme parks in Orange County, California. Uh, Indiana has a better chance than many states of avoiding the widespread outbreaks because of a stricter vaccination requirement, um, according to a public health and legal expert at IUPUI in Indianapolis. But still, many parents decide against vaccinating their children for moral reasons or fear of negative health effects, and this has caused a lot of consternation uh, among health experts uh, around uh, around the, the nation, anyway. Uh, today, we're going to talk about vaccination requirements. We're going to talk about the potential consequences of not vaccinating your children and about this measles outbreak. We have two guests in the studio with us, pediatrician Dr. Scott Moore, who's with the Riley Physicians in Bloomington, and Dr. Robert uh, Bobby Renner, who is a professor in the School of Public Health, Bloomington. If you want to join the conversation, please uh, give us a call at uh, 855-0811 or 1-800-what's um, our... Um, oh, yeah, 1-800-877-285-9348. I've done this show for 15 years, but I can't <laughs> even remember the number. Uh, you can also give us a call, uh, or you can uh, go online, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition, after that smooth opening. <laughs> Welcome to you guys. Thanks for being here. Hi, Bob. Thank you. All Thank right. You. If it makes so, you feel any better, I couldn't remember it either. No, so. man. Well, so can you guys uh, just sort of explain why we're talking about measles, why it's such a big issue today. I know uh, it's been, it seems like it's been such a, well, just hasn't been discussed very much for many years, but um, so Scott, Dr. Moore? Yes. Why don't you go first? Okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of discussion about measles because of the the feelings that it evokes based on the MMR vaccine that we have talked about for a number of years and its association with autism and things like that. So, 
there have been people who have elected to decline vaccination over the past years. We are now seeing more cases of measles spread around the country. Now, uh, this recent outbreak at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, so that causes us to want to talk about that. We also had an outbreak here in Indiana when the Super Bowl was here not long ago. And so measles is still around. It's still a very contagious illness, and it can have a lot of consequences in children that are infected by it. So, yeah, that's what I want to know. How serious a disease is measles? Before the show, Bob mentioned he had measles as a child. You know, how risk, what is the risk uh, for a child who has measles? And isn't there a risk for other people, for like pregnant um, women? And uh, is there an additional risk for them as well? Do I remember that correctly? So the risk for pregnant women associated with the MMR vaccine, rubella is a bigger risk for the uh, fetus of pregnant women. Okay. So measles can cause people to be sick, but it doesn't have any specific risk just for pregnant women. Okay. Um, it does. About 30% of people who develop measles will have a secondary complication like pneumonia or even encephalitis. Uh, the risk of dying from it is, is probably around 1% or 2%, but it can be fatal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Bobby, Dr. Renner? Yeah, so basically the biggest problem with measles is that it's extremely infectious compared to other diseases. So even if you have a small percentage of the population that's susceptible to it, it will kind of find its way through the population a lot easier than other things, even like the flu, which is which we think is being very infectious, but in fact it isn't nearly anywhere in the realm of as infectious as measles. Mm-hmm. So how's it transmitted? So it's transmitted directly between two individuals. It, um, whether or not you actually catch it isn't entirely prescribed by whether or not you're in contact with a person, but it's uh, typically around 90% of the people who come into contact with someone who's infectious who are themselves susceptible can get it. So it spreads quite a lot better than things like the like SARS or even Ebola, something we've been talking about mm-hmm. the last year or so. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you talk about coming into contact, I mean, if I if I was uh, if I had it right now, would you guys be in danger? Yes, definitely. The, from so from you know across the room, that's yes. Close about. Even being in the same room with someone, you have about a ninety percent chance of becoming infected. And that's uh, you know this, you mentioned the Super Bowl in Indianapolis, and I know I've been reading you know the folks in Arizona with the Super Bowl coming up this weekend. I think they've they've had an outbreak of. I think a smaller one than California, but they've had an outbreak in Arizona, and they're pretty concerned about what what might happen out there. What are the early symptoms? The early symptoms that we look for are fever, cough, redness of the eyes, and then the rash. Mm -hmm. Usually it happens within a week or two after exposure. And the pictures I've seen, it's um, the rash is, um, can cover a large p- portion of the body. Does it always, or is it sometimes more isolated? How does that work? Typically, it's widespread. It starts on the face or the, and then spreads to the trunk and then to the extremities. So it's kind of a, a unique spread of a rash. Mm-hmm. That's, it sounds miserable. Yeah, you guys are all too young to have enjoyed that <laughs> like I did when I was a kid. So. That's true. Right. Yeah. right. All right. So 855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So we have a tape from Professor Ross Silverman from IUPUI. Um, it was a, an interview that uh, I believe Lacey Scarman, our producer, did with Dr. Silverman, and uh, he talks about why Indiana's at a little bit less risk than some other states. We're going to play that right now. 
what we looked at was how those exemptions are structured has a significant effect on the number of people who are receiving those types of exemptions and the protection that the law will allow for the public as well as for the individual children to be protected against vaccine-preventable illnesses. And what we did was we broke down the nature of the components of the types of exemptions into uh, different subcategories. A state like Indiana only permits religious exemptions, whereas a state like California has a personal belief exemption. And what we found is that states that have these personal belief exemptions have a far higher percentage of the population who end up taking those exemptions. So California last year had 17,000 kindergartners, which is about just over 3% of all kindergartners who got one of those exemptions. In Indiana, we had just over 700 children get religious exemptions, which is less than 1% of all children going into kindergarten in Indiana. One of the things that's important to know about the exemption population is it's not like the 17,000 children are spread evenly across all of the state. They tend to be asked for in clustered communities. So what you have there, instead of having 3% across the entire population, in certain schools, in certain communities, you may have 10%, 12%, as high I've seen as 25 to 40% in particular schools where the children uh, are exempted from vaccinations. So that creates these pockets of extreme vulnerability. Indiana, like a number of states, have state registries where the child's vaccination record is collected in a centralized database in order to ensure if there happens to be an outbreak that vulnerable populations can more readily be identified. And the state of Indiana has recently passed a law that is going to require that all vaccine records for children under the age of 19 in Indiana be submitted into this centralized database by healthcare practitioners. So we're going to have a very robust surveillance system that's going to allow for very rapid response and prevention measures to take place. All right. Well, that was uh, Professor Ross Silverman from IUPUI talking about some of the research he's done and why um, Indiana may be a little less susceptible to a measles outbreak than other states. So, Dr. Bobby Renner is here with us, and you came here from California, so you're familiar with, with uh, I would assume, the policies of, of both states. So can you can you sort of add to what Ross Silverman said about you know, they, these exemptions and, and having, um, you know, state policies in place that help protect the public. So there is some preconceived notion that um, vaccination can cause lots of adverse side effects. Uh, vaccines 20, 30 years ago were a lot more likely to cause severe side effects. Some of them actually could, when the old, older polio vaccines could actually give a very small subset of the people who got it polio. Mm -hmm. Those sorts of things have been slowly um, weeded out. The current polio vaccine cannot give you polio, the same sorts of things with the old MMR vaccine versus the new one. So people started being very concerned about what was being put in their children's bodies, which makes sense. People want to protect their children. This was all made a lot worse by uh, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who um, linked autism to the MMR vaccine 
through a study that has been uh, thrown out of the, the, the study's report, it has thrown out of the Lancet. Um, the study's been tried to be repeated over and over again, and it hasn't been. Some states that allow people to make these uh, individual choices, which seems to, uh, to be a reasonable right, allow them to forego lots of vaccines or forego as many vaccines at once as are prescribed. States like California, specifically states like California, a subset of the population who are relatively well-educated mothers are making decisions that it's better for their children not to be vaccinated because they'd rather not see the side effects than get these diseases that they think are relatively rare. Where they, while they are relatively rare, one of the reasons they're relatively rare is because we had the vaccine. Once we get rid of the vaccine or once we allow these pockets to have this susceptibility, it can reemerge, and it can't. Ju- it won't just reemerge within these sub these small populations. There are certain people for which the vaccine doesn't work, or certain people that can't actually take the vaccine because maybe they're going through chemotherapy because they have uh, child leukemia. Those people are going to be susceptible, and they're depending on the herd immunity of the rest of the population to protect them. Having these pockets doesn't give them this herd immunity, and so by these making people making these personal choices, they're not just endangering their own children, but also the children around them. Interesting uh, sort of greater good argument there. So mm-hmm. all states allow medical exemption. Mm-hmm. So if you're getting chemotherapy or if you have an immune compromised state, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you would have more reaction or adverse reaction to the vaccines. It mm-hmm. means that they won't work as well. You won't develop such a robust immune response. So. We usually wait to give those vaccines until the kids that we take care of are done with their uh, chemotherapy or their cancer treatment or those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Occasionally, they may have a reaction to one of the vaccine components or something that is seen over and over in that patient. And so we do have uh, medical exemptions, and those are allowed in all states. Mm -hmm. There are about 20 states or so right now that allow uh, philosophical exemptions, Mm -hmm. and all states and in, except, I believe, West Virginia and Mississippi now allow religious exemptions. Mm-hmm. Scott, you're really in the trenches on this uh, topic. I'm sure you've experienced a parent or many parents who have said, um, no, I don't, want, I don't want that vaccine for my child. I have concerns about that. How do you respond? What's, what's your approach in a situation like that? Well, I'm all for talking to people about these issues. This is a big responsibility for the parents and also for us to take care of the kids and do what we think is is the best for the child. So, you know, I have parents all the time that apologize for looking on the Internet and bringing in information that they want to talk about. And I say, well, where do you think I get my information? (laughs) I think we try to look for a good, reputable website. to follow, but yeah. we talk about this all the time. We spend a lot of time and energy talking about vaccinations. Every time we have a patient come into the office, whether they're there for a checkup or uh, you know a broken bone or a wart removal or anything, we run a vaccine forecast uh, that looks at our vaccine recording system to see if they're up to date or if there are any vaccines that they need. And we try to keep kids updated all the time. Mm-hmm. I do have patients occasionally who don't want to get vaccines or they want to use an alternate schedule, Uh, probably less so now than 10 years ago when the MMR autism link was first talked about a lot in the news Uh or since 1998 anyway. Um, But I get a lot less of that now because I think that that really has, that science has been debunked and there's no relationship that has been found between the vaccine and autism. So do you try to encourage people to go ahead and get the vaccine then? I do. Yeah. 
So even uh, I'm I'm very successful at it actually. <laughs> I can be pretty convincing. Well, um, you know, this is a relationship that we try to develop though between mm-hmm. the parents and me and trying to take care of the child as best we can. So I'm hoping that they're coming to me for my advice and I try to give them what I think is the best. Mm-hmm. And I have four of my own kids and they've all been vaccinated with everything that I can find. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now you mentioned a, an alternate schedule. What's that mean? So some people would like to spread out the vaccines or start them later than birth or two months of age when we give vaccines uh, in the beginning. Or they think anyway that if we give all the vaccines at the same time at their two-month, four-month, six-month visits and so on, that that is going to overwhelm the immune system. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is no science that would back that up. So Mm -hmm. we do recommend based on the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics and everyone else's recommendations to give the vaccines on the regular schedule. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in the information business and the internet's a great thing if it's, you know, used wisely. But mm-hmm. there's so much information out there that people, I'm, you know, they can bring you. It's just like you said, yeah, you use, that's where you get your information sure. too, but you know where to go to to get information that actually has some validity to it. And I wanted to address something um, that Ross Silverman said as far as uh, school corporations and that I have to say locally, I think that our our school corporations do an amazing job of uh, keeping us updated. If, if, you know, let's say you get busy and you do miss a, a one of the vaccinations that's on your schedule, they let you know about it. They send home a form and say, hey, you know, your your child is missing this and you need to get that taken care of, which as a parent who does believe in vaccinations, I find very helpful and, and I think of as a public service. And we had a caller who uh, wanted to take the, the answer off the air and the caller is from Bloomington, wants to know if adults who weren't vaccinated as kids should be vaccinated now. Sure, <laughs> for some things. Uh, if it, if you're talking about measles itself, if you're born before 1957, we consider all of those people to be immune. They were probably around somebody with the measles and had the infection or were at least exposed enough to develop immunity. Um, That's you know, something my, my age actually helps me in that, in that area. <laughs> so speaking for myself, since I work in the healthcare field, we are required to have updated vaccinations for everything. And uh, so you can check levels of antibody response to vaccination components and see if you have enough or high enough levels that you would be considered to be immune. So that's another way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to ask, you know, you talked about, um, Dr. Renner talked about some you know, pockets of people who aren't vaccinated and, and whatnot, and sometimes the vaccine doesn't work as well. And I actually want to take a leap and go a little off topic about the flu vaccine. And because I think a lot of people are, you know, a lot of people get a flu shot or a flu vaccine every year. And, and it seems like this year there's been lots of sort of chatter about how it was the wrong strain or didn't work. And so I, I just sort of want an explanation of, of that and how this, how the flu vaccine works. And, you know, should people have gotten it this year and, or every year? Um, Dr. Renner, you want to? Yeah, so flu is a little bit, well, it's, it's considerably different than something like measles. So flu has is made up of multiple strains that are currently evol- or continuously evolving. So the flu that you get this year won't be the same flu that will be around the next couple of years. 
at the beginning of the year, or I guess maybe even uh, before the beginning of the year, they, uh, people try to select what they think is going to be the three most likely flu strains that are going to be hitting uh, the, the country the following year. And they develop the vaccine based on those three strains. Now, of course, those three strains might not be the three strains that show up. Those three strains might be, you might have actually been protected from other flus that you didn't get, but then you got a fourth flu and then you think that the flu vaccine didn't in fact work. It's not nearly as well understood because it's continually changing as something like measles or something like polio or something like uh, MMR just in general. But uh, it, it is something where it's very hard to look back afterwards and say what would have happened were I to not have had this. Mm-hmm. Were people not to have those three strains protected against, maybe they would have been a, a bigger outbreak or a different kind of outbreak. And so it's, it's a little easy to look back and say there was a lot of flu. But flu is also something that we know just because you get the flu shot doesn't mean you're protected against flu. Whereas if you get the, the measles vaccine, it's over 95 percent effective. So it's not nearly the same sort of thing where we're... We, we, we go into it knowing that there's uncertainty. Okay, good. What other vaccines do children get? There are 14 now 14? that we recommend really? during childhood. Oh, okay. Would you like me to list I them? I would, absolutely. <laughs> okay. That's a Can test, you do that? Huh? <laughs> so diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis or whooping cough, haemophilus influenza B, which is a bacteria that causes meningitis, uh, pneumococcus, which is also a bacteria that can cause meningitis, Hepatitis A, hepatitis B, polio, measles, mumps, rubella, uh, human papillomavirus, uh, meningococcus, which is also a bacteria that can cause meningitis, and chickenpox, varicella. All right, that's an A. You, get, you, get <laughs> you an did a it. You that. get your gold star for the day. Very good. So um, how long have, have those 14 been you know, uh, recommended and like 10 years ago, was it 14 or 20 years ago? Was it, you know, how, so how, how has that evolved? Well, they have been added. So there are a number that have been added over the past 20 years, I suppose. Um, You know, in 1962, where the federal funding for compulsory vaccinations, when that law was passed federally, there were diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, measles, and uh, I believe smallpox still at that time. Mm-hmm. But that went away pretty quickly after that. So since that time, we've added all of the other vaccinations. Okay. The most recent are the meningococcal meningitis vaccine and the human papilloma HPV, virus yeah. or HPV vaccine. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, and I, I know that chickenpox, uh, people who've had chickenpox when they were a kid are susceptible to a whole lot of other things, like shingles, for one. I'm aware sure. of that. Yeah. So if you have chickenpox, the chickenpox virus hides in the nerve roots in your spinal cord and can come back as shingles later in life. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll but, go ahead and ask the question that our caller asked before. If, if the, you know, are, should adults be vaccinated with these things now? Any of these? Are you going to say yes again? Well... <laughs> I'm an adult, and I've been vaccinated for most all of those things. Um, And, uh, you know, we recommend a tetanus diphtheria pertussis booster at least one time during adulthood, and then tetanus and diphtheria every 10 years, like has been recommended for a long, long time. Uh, There are other adult vaccines that are recommended later, like a a vaccine for shingles. Mm -hmm. There's an added pneumococcal vaccine that is recommended for people 65 and older. Uh, there are, you know, being vaccinated against the other 
uh, things that I mentioned, a lot of those are worse or more likely in childhood. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of them that we don't recommend once you get beyond childhood. Mm -hmm. Okay. We uh, The measles has been back in the news. There has been an outbreak in California, an outbreak in Arizona. There, it's just uh, it's more prevalent this year than it's been in previous years. So we're talking about that today with pediatrician Dr. Scott Moore. Uh, from Riley, and he lives and works here in Bloomington, and IU School of Public Health professor, Dr. Bobby Renner. If you want to join us on the uh, program, please give us a call, 855-0811 in Bloomington, or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. We're talking today with uh, two uh, doctors, Dr. Scott Moore and Dr. Bobby Renner. Uh, Dr. Renner is with the IU School of Public Health. Uh, he's a professor with the IU School of Public Health and Dr. Scott Moore is a pediatrician with Riley Physicians and uh, he's here in Bloomington. If you have questions or comments, please give us a call 855-0811 in Bloomington. 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. And uh, also you can join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Bobby, I'm wondering if you're concerned um, from a public health perspective of um, people opting out of vaccines and is that kind of an undoing of something um, <laughs> that was a long time in the making as far as, you know, basically eliminating um, a lot of these diseases, especially in our country. Um, do you, are you concerned about this kind of unraveling before our very eyes? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, absolutely. The, the, the thing that's kind of incredible is that for some of these diseases, they have been essentially uh, eliminated from America. There, there, there might be one case that will show up. Because again, even with something like the measles vaccine, it's not perfectly effective. So you might get somebody that comes in that has it and they just happen to find somebody who wasn't, who, who got the measles vaccine, but it didn't work for mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And then there might be one uh, local transmission case, mm -hmm. but it won't catch fire and then hit a whole bunch of other people. And so even though we might get a couple every year, we're not gonna get anywhere near the same amount. You had said earlier, typically within an entire year, we get 60 cases or so. Mm -hmm. Now we've already had over 80 in the first month. This um, problem will slowly grow unless these, unless these small pockets kind of catch fire. 
as a pocket grows and grows and grows, it will be more likely that, it, that, that a measles case will pop into one of those pockets and then spread. And then it will be more likely for those few people that did have it, who, who had the vaccine but weren't protected, it'll be more, they'll have more contact with more people who are infectious, so their chance of getting infected as well will be higher. If only one person's infectious and it meets somebody who had the vaccine but it didn't work on that one person, there's a certain chance they'll get infected. But if that person comes into contact with 10 different people, it'll be ever so more likely that that person will get infected. And this will spread and spread. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So maybe we'll be in a situation where we'll have these outbreaks more and more and it won't be able to get to the point where we'll have a huge population of susceptibles, which is good, but also bad, or could unfortunately be the circumstance where we could get in some ways lucky for many years and build up this pool of susceptibles. And then when it actually hits, it would really take off. Mm -hmm. So do you do you spend your time extrapolating? Okay, so we've got the measles situation and the <laughs> extrapolating, okay, well, what if you know, polio turns up here somehow or, you know, some other, um, I don't know, you name you name the bad public disease. <laughs> so actually, um, at least the people that I work with and, and myself, we don't really work on things like measles because we assume that these aren't really the same sorts of problems that we're going to have with something like, for example, an Ebola or something like a SARS, which was something that was a, a big deal about the last decade. And it it is considerably less infectious, but because it's a concern, people start paying attention to it a lot more or uh, chicken flu. Those kinds of problems which are less infectious that we don't have a vaccine for, those are the things that we spend our time on because we were hoping that once we get a vaccine that actually works, we won't really have to worry about that pathogen anymore. There's other ones where there's other pathogens we have where we're currently or people are currently developing vaccines, but they don't seem to work as well. And we're trying to figure out how to augment the, the effect of the vaccine with either community information mm -hmm. or some other sorts of control. For the ones that work, we kind of put them on the shelf and assume that that's no longer a problem. We can mm -hmm. get to the other problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. it gets get scary. You know, I'm I, gosh, I can't believe I'm this old, but you know, polio was a big deal when I was a kid too. And you know, I have friends who had polio when they were young and it was a really bad bad disease but mm -hmm. now it's been basically eradicated from most countries uh, there still are a few pockets around I think in Africa perhaps mm -hmm. where there are mm -hmm. some pockets but it uh, you know it was very scary for people back in the day oh, yeah. all right we have a phone call Valerie's from Owen County Valerie go ahead yeah hi, hi. Um, as I was telling the uh, call screener in addition to listening to NPR, I listen to a lot of right-wing talk radio because I think it's educational to get divergent viewpoints. And I don't know if you listen to this stuff, but the latest uh, take on their uh, programs is that this measles outbreak is obviously directly related to all of these uh, children coming across the border from Central America and being dispersed throughout the country and uh, I, so far I haven't heard them provide any hard evidence that this is true so I'd like your opinion as to whether or not there really is any evidence that there's a connection between you know kids from Central America flooding across the border and the measles outbreak I'll take my answer off the air all right Valerie thanks, thanks. Mm -hmm. so the the best answer I heard to, to this um, statement was um, a, actually another question. Has, have, have you seen how much it costs to go to Disneyland? Hmm. This is not the sort of place that is going to be the, the first stop 
for people after they come across the border from Mexico. But in, 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 in all seriousness, uh, Mexico itself actually has a pretty high vaccination rate. So the, the people who would be coming across the border that are unvaccinated would have to actually have come through Mexico itself. If they had had measles when they were farther south than Mexico, by the time they get through Mexico, they will have already presented that they, that they will already have active measles and the rash. And they, it won't be so much that we can actually be surprised that there are all these illegal immigrants flooding into a place that costs a couple hundred dollars to go. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I do think that uh, suggesting that these illnesses that we don't have very much in the United States are imported from other countries is completely the basis for finding them in the United States now. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, whether that's just travelers or if it's international adoptees or others who come here. Or there was a, so a couple outbreaks ago in Indiana, there were 30 or so children that were infected with measles uh, in a group that went on a mission trip um, and to the Philippines where measles is still endemic and they were unvaccinated. It was a church group. They came back to the United States, and that's where that was the index case of that measles outbreak in Indiana. Mm-hmm. So all of these illnesses that we take for granted have been eliminated, you know, between 80 and 99 percent for the vaccine uh, preventable diseases are still a plane ride away from here. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as cosmopolitan as the United States is, and even <laughs> Bloomington, uh, with the university here, we have cases here occasionally. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit more about travel vaccines in a minute, but we have a, a, a question that was from our live chat. What would doctors recommend about vaccinating a new child when one or both parents have severe allergies to vaccine? So allergies, the tendency to, va- to have allergies is inheritable. The specific allergy should not be inherited. Uh, so we would still recommend vaccinating and watching closely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And isn't it possible? I know that they've taken some of the preservatives that used to be common in vaccines. Those are those have been eliminated now. So perhaps the formula of the vaccine that the parent received would be a very different formula than what would be now available for the child. It likely would be different. So we used to have vials that had multiple doses in them, so they required to have a they, they needed to have a preservative in them to keep them sterile as we had to re-enter the bottle with a needle for each dose. Mm-hmm. Now all the vaccines that we use are single dose, and so they don't require the same kind of preservatives. So it might lower the chances for the allergy yes. appearing in so the child. So specifically thimerosal, which was discussed a lot in the past. We don't have any vaccines. There is still a flu vaccine that is available that has that, but otherwise that has been eliminated from all of the other regular childhood vaccinations. Okay. Okay. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. And you can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. So we have a phone call from Guy. Hey, Guy. Yes. Go right ahead. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I've got a granddaughter in Southern California near Disneyland. She is under one. One-year-olds, until you're one, you can't be vaccinated, is certainly the understanding they have from their doctors. So anybody who opts out of vaccination for their own children is exposing every baby under one-year-old to, uh, uh, to measles. It seems to me that's a very irresponsible thing for people to do. 
Guy, we have some some nodding heads in here. So, when do you guys want to take that? Uh, that is true. So the MMR vaccine is a live viral vaccine. We don't typically give live viral vaccines until after the child turns one. So there are other vaccines that we give even a birth dose of hepatitis B and then regular vaccines at two months, four months, six months. And then, but the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine and the varicella or chickenpox vaccine, which is also a live viral vaccine, we don't give until after the child's one. So it is true, they have no way of building up immunity before that because we do not vaccinate them before that for those illnesses. Mm-hmm. Bobby, do you want to add something? No, no that's, that's absolutely true. That's the same? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank so, you. Oh, go ahead. I think that uh, overall, ironically, because of our success with the required vaccination program that we have in the United States, that uh, a lot of people become complacent about these illnesses, even though they can be severe and they are still around worldwide. We have outbreaks of measles now. We have outbreaks of pertussis or whooping cough pretty regularly now. And so it is still important to have children immunized for these things. If you think about polio, we haven't seen a case of wild-type polio in the United States for 40 years probably. And, uh, but it is still around worldwide. Most young children with polio virus are asymptomatic but shed the polio virus for six or eight weeks at least after becoming infected. So mm-hmm. there likely still is wild type, which it means the patient has the regular type of polio virus still around in the United States. It's just that most patients are vaccinated, so they are not going to develop the illness. Mm-hmm. Was polio one of, uh, do we still vaccinate for that? I couldn't remember if that was we one do. of the 14. Okay. We I, do. Didn't, I didn't know if we still did since we haven't had a case in so mm-hmm. long. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. I'd like to, if, if we have any listeners out there who have experience with polio when you were a kid, might give us a call and let us know about, you know, what that disease was like because it, it was a pretty devastating disease. Okay. We have another phone call on the line. Dan from Monroe County. Go ahead, Dan. Hello, Bob. Um, well, first, vaccines. I had shingles six months before shingles vaccine. Hey, Dan, that. we can't really understand you. Can you get to a different place? I don't think your reception's too good. Um, okay, let me try this. Uh, that's still not great. Um, well, I'm in Lawrence County, so. <laughs> Give it a try. Give it a try. We'll try, we'll, try to, we'll try to understand you. Um, well, I had shingles six months before the vaccine came out, so I'd do a commercial for them. Um, but of the we, whooping cough, we had this break outbreak um, two years ago, and now we have measles. Which of the shots that are people avoiding are going to cause um, a high mortality outbreak, um, diphtheria, um, any of the other ones that they're avoiding, because it seems like we're just kind of playing roulette, and we're and even though measles is serious, we're still not getting hit by the really bad ones yet. I'll listen on the radio. Okay, Dan. Hey, thanks a lot for the call. All right. Um, Bobby, Bobby, you had kind of an ironic chuckle on that. I want to know what that's all about. Well, I mean, it's not really clear that um, so one out of one out of a hundred or, or one out of a thousand people dying isn't really um, clear that we're, we're we we really need to learn the serious lesson that we we shouldn't be allowing uh, our children to get diseases that are preventable. Um, I wouldn't necessarily know that one vaccine seems more likely than the others. I think the MMR vaccine has gotten a lot of press. 
So uh, measles, mumps, and rubella would probably be the ones I would imagine would come back um, with force. Uh, pertussis has also gotten a lot of uh, bad, bad rap. So um, mostly, unfortunately, I think we're, um, people get information about what vaccines are bad to take from sources that aren't necessarily um, using science. And so subsequently, whatever those people happen to say is the bad vaccine will be the one. I don't think it's done at random. I think it's just basically some sort of anecdotal evidence that somebody said somewhere that this was bad. So we're going to stop taking it. Mm-hmm. So do we see m- much mumps anymore at all? Does it ever Not very much mumps up? occasionally. The mumps vaccine is about 88% protective or so. So uh, mm-hmm. if there were mumps around, there would be more people even fully vaccinated that may be susceptible to that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I see a case of mumps about every five years probably. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. Well, we've talked some about, you know, about the, the fact that you know, the world has grown a lot smaller and people are coming and going and it's easy to come and go. And I, I guess I wanted to – First, I guess I'll ask, ask Dr. Renner, um, as a public health expert, um, you know, are, are we, uh, what, can we, what can be done about this? Is there anything that can be or should be done about the fact that, you know, the United States can do a whole lot of things in terms of, uh, you know, 14 different vaccinations, but if the vaccinations are not available in places where, where people are coming to the U.S. or where people from the U.S. are going to those, visit those places and then coming back, you know, how, um, how, how do we protect ourselves to the, you know, the, the most uh, possible degree, I guess? So, um, well, one thing is, is that organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are actually trying to increase the amount of vaccines available to the, the, the developing countries so that this isn't actually a problem and they're trying to cut it off at the source, get to the point where we actually, instead of eliminating a, a disease from a certain country, eradicating it from the globe, like mm-hmm. we did with smallpox. To be perfectly honest, um, if we protect ourselves from infectious diseases, even if most of us protect ourselves from infectious diseases, someone coming off a plane who's infectious, again, they're only, just because they sneeze when they get off the plane, it doesn't get us here in the studio. It gets the people that are close to them. So if the people who are close to them are protected, it'll be more likely that there won't be an outbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, I think, unfortunately, we get a lot more concerned about diseases that are a lot less scary mm-hmm. or sorry a lot less likely to cause infection just because they're scary something like ebola for example the chances of getting ebola if you were in the same room with someone with ebola would be quite unlikely they'd have to sneeze a large globule of uh, mucus onto your eye for example it's not like just being around them would give you ebola but ebola kills people and ebola is scary and so we care a lot about ebola simultaneously Measles doesn't kill as many people, but it causes debilitating side effects. It makes you more likely to get in certain uh, diseases later in life. And to be perfectly honest, it's, it's easily preventable, but it's just less sexy, if you will, so we don't care as much about it. So mm-hmm. basically, to answer your question, just protecting ourselves from the things that we can get and being moderately rational. If, if we have a plane load of people coming off from a place that just had a big outbreak of mm. the plague, we should maybe be a little concerned about those people spreading the plague. Sounds reasonable. Hey, uh, to come at this from a different direction, I know that 
uh, again, going back to what we talked about at the beginning of the show, people's concerns about a possible link between the MMR and autism um, is keeping some people from vaccinating, not in your practice because you're a good convincer, but no, but it is keeping some people from vaccinating. So let's talk about autism and is there any progress being made in finding the causes for that? The numbers on that just seem to keep growing. It's, uh, you know, a, a very real and present concern and I mean I can't think of any parent who hasn't had that concern until mm -hmm. their child reaches a certain age where you kind of go okay it looks like we dodged that bullet. Well there's a lot of energy being put into research and studying autistic patients and the incidence of autism which certainly has risen over the last 10 to 20 years. Some of that is a reclassification some of that is because we have very set criteria so that I, as a pediatrician, can make the diagnosis. We used to have to send them somewhere special to make the diagnosis. There are many different uh, kind of levels of autism. Some patients are severely affected. Many are not quite so severely affected. Uh, so there's a wide range of that. Um, so no, we really don't know what the, what the cause of that or the root of that would be. I think that the science suggests that there is no link between any of the vaccinations and autism. Uh, I think that we are getting closer probably to finding some genetic Components. component that, that will define that. Um, and it may be like many diseases, there's not just one single gene, but there may be multiple genes that we will find that are at the root of autism. Some people are concerned that it's an autoimmune illness. It seems that uh, children, their families have an increased incidence of having autoimmune diseases in the family. So it may be a combination of those things, but I think there's, uh, the science would suggest that there's absolutely no link between that and any of the vaccinations that we use. Yeah, and I hope I didn't come across as, as disagreeing no. with that at all. It just seemed like if we could say, okay, we figured out what causes autism, this is what it is, and so you go ahead and vaccinate. We can't say that yet. Right. Uh, we do know that uh, it is going to be associated just time-wise with vaccinations, particularly the MMR vaccine. We usually make the diagnosis of autism somewhere between one and two, closer to mm -hmm. two years of age. Uh, and the MMR vaccine is given around 15 months typically now. Um, but there are lots of other things that we do around that time as well. Okay, thanks. All right, we're going to go back to the phones, and we have Brad from Seymour on the line, and Brad has a question about shingles, right, Brad? Yes, yeah, sir. Sure. Um, two things, please, two questions. Uh, I was told, or I guess it was a commercial, I saw a commercial that said one in three people 60-plus would, uh, would have shingles, or 65-plus maybe, and I'm in my 70s, and... Uh, I went to have a, a vaccination uh, for that and was told by a pharmacist that the vaccination is only 50% successful. Uh, that was the first question. The second question was I'm on a particular uh, prescription that uh, I would have to drop in order to get methotrexate in, in order to have the shingles vaccination. Can you help me with that, please? Either one. Right. I'll do Doctor. my best as a pediatrician. Right. So about 50% of people by 80 years of age will have had the shingles in their lifetime. So it's very common. The shingles vaccine, which is the same as the 
varicella or chickenpox vaccine that we give to younger children. It has 13 times the amount of virus uh, contained in it. So we hope to stimulate an adult's immune system. It may not completely keep you from getting the shingles after that, but hopefully it would decrease the severity of it. So when you say it's 50% effective, it may not completely keep you from getting the shingles, but it should decrease the severity. Methotrexate is a medication that decreases the immune system function, and so the response to the vaccine may not be as robust, and the, uh, the shingles vaccine is a live viral vaccine, so we usually do not give that to people who are on long-term immunosuppressive medication. So it may be true that you would need to stop that to get the shingles vaccination. Uh, and with the shingles, and you, you've alluded to this, but I mean, the, it, it sort of presents in a lot of different ways, doesn't it, I mean, in terms of the severity of what you're going to get from like itchy to really, really painful. Yes. Okay. The really painful ones are the ones that you know about. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. right. But we see those in kids, too. I've had four- and five-year-olds with shingles. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, since the chickenpox vaccine is a live viral vaccine, you can get the shingles after having the chickenpox vaccine, even if you don't get the chickenpox. Mm-hmm. It's about a third as likely after the vaccine as it is after having the regular case of the chickenpox, but you can still get the shingles. All right. Well, we have just a few more minutes to go. If you have a quick question, 855-0811-877-285-9348. You can also ask us on our live chat, wfiu.org slash Edition. I wanted to go back to something uh, Dr. Renner said a little bit ago about, um, you know, that Ebola, for instance, is a very serious illness. We all know that. And it got a lot of press and a lot of attention. I know about that time I was getting letters to the editor of the paper that were saying things like, well, X number of people may die from Ebola this year and, you know, thousands are going to die from the flu. And, you know, again, I think that sort of made a similar point to what you were making. And, you know, again, I wanted I guess I wanted to uh, just just revisit that point that there are so many preventable diseases that actually could be fatal if you don't take proper precautions. Doctor, can you sort of sure. respond to that? And I, I don't know. So, that wasn't really a question. It was kind of a statement in the form of a question, I guess. No, I agree. I have many patients that uh, are reluctant to get the flu vaccine. They say every time they get the flu vaccine, they get the flu. So That's not true, right? That's not true. Okay. <laughs> so the, the, the flu shot in particular is a dead virus. It cannot cause the flu. It can make you achy. It can give you a fever for a day or two, but usually there are no more severe uh, symptoms than that. Um, so there are more people that die from the flu every year in the United States than all of the other vaccine-preventable illnesses that I vaccinate mm-hmm. against, mm-hmm. period. Somewhere 30,000 or so, 30 to 50,000 typically will die from the flu de- depending on the flu year. So we do recommend flu vaccination for everybody. Bobby, obviously the measles, as an expert in public health, that's not keeping you up at night. What do you worry about regarding public health uh, for the United States? Um, Unfortunately, probably. So flu, obviously, is a huge problem um, that is hard to solve. I would say things like these increases in, in, in people deciding to opt out or change the schedule of their vaccines to make them and the people around them more susceptible is um, at one level um, an understandable but maybe misinformed choice. 
Uh, my personal opinion. And then at another level, kind of unconscionably inappropriate, just as the number of people you're putting at risk for getting these diseases who, who don't have the choices that you do and can't decide that they want to get the vaccine as well, not, not just children under the age of one, but again, we were talking about uh, people who are going through chemotherapy or, or the rare person who might be allergic to the, the vaccine. Those people don't get to make the choice and you're making a choice for them. Those are probably the, the, the biggest problems for us Again, as a, as a developed country, we don't have to worry so much about some of the, the real uh, severe diseases like a, a rotavirus or a malaria. But mm-hmm. we do still, it's kind of sad that we're kind of um, at the point where we're worrying about things that we shouldn't really be worrying about anymore. All right. Our, our uh, audience is all fired up now, so we've got a couple questions about the shingles. Uh, Tim is first. Tim? Can we get Hello. Tim? Yeah, Tim. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I had shingles several years ago, and my doctor uh, pushed the idea of getting a shingle shot anyway. Again, I resisted it for a couple of visits, finally broke down and got the shot, which immediately gave me shingles. Uh, my mother had did the very expensive shingles shot, and 15 years later, she got the shingles. You said it's only 50% good. How can they spend hundreds of thousands promoting something that's only a 50% chance and charge hundreds of dollars for it? All right, we're going to we're going to let uh, Doctor answer that. We've only got about 30 seconds to go. I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. I don't know uh, how those circumstances happen that you got shingles shortly after that. Uh, we still recommend doing those vaccinations. They are expensive. The treatment and the discomfort from the shingles is also expensive and can be debilitating. And so like many of the things we do, we try to decrease the significance or seriousness of the illness, uh, but it does not work all the time. All right, we're out of time. My apologies to Kat. We couldn't get her call on the air. Uh, I want to thank our guests today, Dr. Scott Moore and Dr. Robert Bobby Renner, uh, for producer Lacey Scarmana, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Mary Catherine. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu.